Welcome to the University of California, San Francisco Sports Medicine Podcast, featuring Dr. Nira Fundia, Dr. Brian Healy, and Dr. Drew Lansdowne, discussing hot topics in sports medicine and society. We hope you enjoy our podcast and look forward to hearing from you. All right. Welcome, everyone, to our UCSF Sports Medicine Podcast, six to eight weeks with myself, Dr. Nira Fundia, and Dr. Brian Feely. Today, we are going to be discussing shoulder dislocations. Obviously, here in the Bay Area, um, we are dealing with Steph Curry having a shoulder subluxation. Um, we'll talk about the difference between the two, but obviously, this is something we see a lot, particularly with ski season, kids coming off the of football season, and just general athletes who, uh, who are very active in a day-to-day life. So, Maybe the first question, Brian, I have for you, can you tell us what a shoulder dislocation is and maybe what, how is that different from a shoulder subluxation? Sure. I think there are two things, two general joints of the shoulder that we talk about. One is your AC joint or your acromioclavicular joint, which is where your collarbone comes and meets um, your primary shoulder bone, your scapula. That's what people talk about when they get a shoulder separation. So Many years ago, Alex Smith, Eli Manning, way back in 2007, 2008, both had a shoulder um, separation. When we talk about shoulder dislocations or subluxations, we're talking about your glenohumeral joint or where the ball meets the socket. And that if you move your arm back and forth, you can feel that where there's a ball underneath your deltoid muscle that's in a relatively shallow socket. Your shoulder is kind of interesting in that for humans and honestly for most animals, it's a very shallow socket that allows for a lot of motion. So it's relatively easy to dislocate. And in fact, it's the easiest thing in your body to dislocate. So when you get a shoulder dislocation, physically what happens is the ball, which we, which kind of, if you look at it in cross-section, looks like a golf ball sitting on a tee. The ball comes physically off the tee and sits usually in front. About 95% of shoulder dislocations are anterior dislocations. So it sits off the front of the, of the tee. And then we have to pull it or patients have to pull it and put it back on the tee. About 5% of the time, it can go out the back. Um, but those are pretty uncommon. Those are with really severe trauma, like a motor vehicle accident um, or with seizures. Um, a subluxation is a little bit different. A subluxation can cause the same patterns when we look at the injury, but the shoulder doesn't go all the way out. So it will still push forward. It can still cause injury to the shoulder, but then a patient um, either usually fires their muscles in the right way, which isn't something that's purposeful, but your shoulder doesn't go out and stay out. It kind of goes out, perches, and then comes back in. Yeah, now, in terms of when, you know, individuals do have that happen, like it pops out, you know, we think of famous athletes who may have seen this stuff happen on TV, you know, Curry with a subluxation, Dwayne Wade, who, you know, played for the Miami Heat and the, and the Bulls in the past. Um, you know, you kind of see them kind of leaned over and the shoulder out. What do you do if your shoulder pops up? Is this something you need to go to the emergency room? Is someone on the sideline doing it? Like, what are the steps initially if this is something you've actually experienced? Yeah, I think it totally depends on how, if it's happened before, most of the time, patients are going to feel like they can't get it back in themselves. But we definitely have patients that either are around somebody else that is that ha- knows how to put it back in or they've dislocated their shoulder a few times and it becomes relatively easy to put back in or they have access to YouTube. And if you go on YouTube and you look at, I can put my shoulder back in videos, some of them are pretty funny, um, but most of them will actually show you how to do it. But to a certain extent, all you really need to do is try to raise your arm up and abduct it or pull it a little bit out to the side and have somebody kind of push the arm back in. So you can certainly 
try if your shoulder is sitting out in the front to raise your arm in front of you and try to push the head back in. And usually if you're comfortable doing it, it will work. The reality is, is most of the time it's, it's a pretty painful event and you're going to go to the emergency room. The problem if you go to an emergency room is you're often going to sit three, four, five hours. They're going to have to give you a, a fair amount of sedation to put it back in. Um, it does make your long-term outcomes worse, but it's definitely uncomfortable until it happens. Right. So I think, you know, a lot of people, as you mentioned, will go to the emergency room. We typically will always get x-rays just to make sure, number one, nothing is broken because sometimes you can think something's popped out and it's actually a fracture. And number two, to make sure that the shoulder is back in. So for a lot of people, let's say they come to your clinic, they've suffered a shoulder dislocation. It's their first time. Um, do you typically order an MRI and, and why do you order MRI? What are the things that you're looking for that help to keep the shoulder in place? Yeah, I think that's a good question. I think MRI in general, we talk a lot about it being overutilized, but I tend to get it for this, um, for a first time dislocator and for recurrent dislocators, but for different reasons. Um, for a first time dislocator, I want to make sure that everything that we see on x-ray looking normal really is normal. So we know when people dislocate the shoulder, they very, for the first time at least, they very rarely have any bony injuries. And most of the time, if they have a bony injury, we can pick it up on x-ray. But an MRI is going to be a little bit more accurate in quantifying a small amount of bony loss or different injury patterns that we see. Now, the reality is, is if somebody comes in with a dislocation, about 95% of the time, the MRI is going to show the same thing. It's going to show an anterior labral tear, which is called the essential lesion um, of a shoulder dislocation. Because when you dislocate, by definition, you're going to tear the labrum in a vast majority of cases. Um, what I look for with the MRI is to really make sure that there's no bony loss, there's no capsular injury kind of on the other side of the shoulder where it attaches to the ball, because that will change my management early on. For chronic dislocators, we're also looking at how much bone injury there is, because over time, when you've dislocated your shoulder over and over and over, it tends to lead to some bone loss, which is gonna change our plan at the time of surgery, where instead of doing a relatively straightforward uh, uh, labral repair, we may have to do more complicated bony work as well. Now for a first time dislocator, since you deal with kids or people under the age of 18, what do you tell them about rehab? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I think we have this tendency to feel that, you know, kids in general, they will heal things. Um, and not need as much, you know, intervention or may not have as much shoulder instability. But actually in younger patients, we see that basically there's a very high risk of dislocation. So the younger you are, the chance your shoulder is going to pop out again is very high. Part of that has to do with your activity level. Part of it has to do with your overall flexibility. So I think more and more data is suggesting that for younger kids who dislocate their shoulder, they're more likely to possibly need intervention because they're going to dislocate their shoulder out more frequently as opposed to maybe a 25, 30-year-old who dislocates their shoulder, they happen to overextend their shoulder through some traumatic event, and then they likely won't have another dislocation event. So I think rehab for a lot of younger patients is appropriate as a, as a first-line treatment if they're really hesitant for surgery, they may not necessarily be an athlete, or perhaps they're in season for a sport and want to basically try to get through the season before getting it fixed. Um, so I feel, feel that rehab is always an appropriate option, but I think that more and more data is suggesting that this young population can benefit from getting it fixed because they're stressing their shoulder more than the general population and their overall flexibility and just kind of the way they use their shoulder is going to be much more higher demand than the adult population. All right. So I'm going to ask you a question, put you on a spot. 
um, let's say you have a 15 year old and they play um, they play center for their basketball team. They're pretty good. They've got some college aspirations. They have a first time shoulder dislocation. They come into your office. The MRI shows an anterior labral tear and what's called a tiny hill sacs lesion or a little bone bruise in the back of the shoulder. How long before you will let them go back? And what are your criteria to tell that kid, okay, you can go back? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I think in general, the, the overall criteria that I use, uh, number one, they have to have complete pain control. Like you don't want them to have any pain. Number two, they have to have full range of motion. Number three, they have to have full strength. And then number four, which I think is the most important, sometimes the hardest to quantify, is they have to feel basically like their shoulder is not going to pop out again, which basically means apprehension that they're basically like feeling as if it's going to pop out or unable to do activities because of that. If they meet those criteria, then they can go to the next step, which is basically trying to play. And even if all those criteria are basically met and then they can't functionally play basketball well or they're putting other parts of their body at risk, then they need to basically wait until further and further time goes before they basically can get to that level. In general, and I think the best studies have been done in NBA players that look at when you can return to play off the shoulder dislocation unoperatively. I think most people land somewhere right around six to seven weeks in terms of when that happens. Um, you know, if you have a subluxation because there's less damage to structure, sometimes that can be three to four weeks. But I think there's this perception that, oh, my shoulder popped back out, it popped back in, I feel great, let me go back. The important thing, which, which I'm, I'll ask you a little bit about, Brian, is that the muscles play such an important role in helping to stabilize the shoulder as well, too, is that when the shoulder dislocates out, everything around that area basically becomes weaker um, and is less able to control the shoulder and allows you to do activities. So I think it just takes a certain amount of time for things to, to heal somewhere, just like our podcast name, it can take six to eight weeks um, for things to kind of settle down. How about you with, uh, with your adult patients? Yeah, I think it's the same thing. This is one of the few things where things get better as you get older. So I like some of the old natural history studies where they showed under the age of 18 for a first time dislocator, you've got about a 50 to 80% chance of it happening again. From 20 to 30, it's about 30 to 50%. Over 30, it's only about 30%. So for a first time dislocator, over the age of 18, I'm usually going to say, let's try non-operative management, really focus on getting the muscles as strong as possible. And in terms of which muscles to get stronger, if you get your rotator cuff muscles stronger, your rotator cuff acts as kind of rubber bands on three out of four sides of your shoulder, pulling down and holding you in and acting as check reins um, to keep your shoulder in as you go through a variety of ranges of motion. And I think one of the ways I like to think about it is I like to think of it as if you're riding a horse, which I would never do, um, you've got the, the bit in the mouth and you're constantly pulling back on the shoulder and it will guide the horse or your shoulder in different directions, but it will never let you get out of control. Um, that's not the best analogy because all I really think about when, when thinking about that is if you pull too hard, I'm going to fall off the horse which makes me scared, but I guess that sort of works for a shoulder. If you're pulling too hard with one, one way or another and you don't have that control, your shoulder is gonna re-dislocate. Now, I think it's a little bit different once you've had that, that second shoulder dislocation. And if you think way back to math, um, back in um, high school and college, or you know, for you, middle school, when you thought <laughs> about that graph that got closer and closer to that 100% line, um, as you have a second, third, and fourth, 
you're almost guaranteed to continue to have that. And each time you dislocate, you're causing more damage. You're beating up your labrum a little bit more. You're stretching your capsule a little bit. You're probably losing a little bit of bone, especially as you get into that fourth, fifth, sixth dislocation. And I think it's important then to counsel patients totally differently. It's not about how good you do in rehab. It's not about how strong you get your muscles. This is now a anatomic problem that we can't fix without surgery. Now, you know, one of the questions I get a lot of is when we go down the non-operative route is people ask, well, will my labrum actually heal? And number one, how can I live my life with a labrum that's not healed? So maybe for you, Brian, when someone asks, will it actually heal? What do you tell them? Just from a structural standpoint, number two, is this going to set them up to have like arthritis down the road because they've got cartilage in their shoulder that's not healed? What do you, what do you counsel patients in terms of the anatomic structures not healing? Sure. So I think, and I mean, we both, we both experience this when you go in and do a uh, shoulder stabilization, the labrum does sort of heal. It just doesn't heal in the right spot. So once you've knocked something off and have it scar in, it's not going to be the, in the exact same spot. And the way I like to think about it, it's like a little tiny bumper on the front of the shoulder. It really isn't something that's all that impressive when you look at it, but moving it even a few millimeters away from where it should be seems to make a difference. So yes, it does heal. It doesn't heal in the right way. But the thing that we also don't really see very well on imaging is you do stretch the capsule in the front. So now there is a little bit more space in the front of the shoulder. And I think that probably um, portends to why people with recurrent instability, even if their labrum doesn't look that far off, continue to become more and more dislocated as that inner lining of the shoulder stretches out. Um, in terms of risk for arthritis, I think everything is a risk factor. So every injury to your shoulder, just like we talk about with injuries to the knee and meniscus injuries and ACL tears, every time you dislocate, there's a small increase in your risk of developing arthritis at a younger age than you would have otherwise. That can be really, really, really small, especially for people with just one or two dislocations. So it may be something that you were predestined to get arthritis of the shoulder at age 80. It might be at age 78, 76 now. Most of the time, it's not that big of a deal until you're getting into these chronic shoulder instability issues where you're dislocating your shoulder a lot. However, it's not something that is without risk. So once you're dislocating three, four, five times, you probably are putting your shoulder at somewhat more risk than if you had just gotten it fixed after the second or third time. Um, you know, in terms of going down the route of actually getting this fixed. You know, you've dislocated multiple times. You're an athlete who's dislocated one time and needs to get this uh, done in terms of your activity level. Let's talk about arthroscopic surgery because I think that's the most common procedure that's done. What exactly are you doing during surgery that actually helps the shoulder to get stabilized? Yeah. So I think for shoulder stabilizations, this is a really common surgery. So it's the third most common shoulder surgery done in the US. It's almost always done arthroscopically at this point. I think the transition or inflection point from an open surgery where we made a bigger incision to arthroscopic, where we did more arthroscopically through small incisions was in the around 2011, 2012. And I think at that point, most people had transitioned to, I can do almost everything arthroscopically. Um, it's a pretty quick surgery. It takes about anywhere from 35 minutes to an hour and a half, depending on how big of a labral tear you have and how many additional things we need to do. But essentially, we put a small camera in the back of the shoulder. 
two little portals um, in the front of the shoulder, elevate the labrum up off where it's scarred in and improperly um, scarred in the wrong place, put anchors, which are small sutures into the bone, wrap them around the capsule and labrum and tie them down. And what that does is that shrinks the space in the front of the shoulder. And it also puts your labrum back in a more anatomic position. In fact, we often over reduce it. So we put it a little bit further up on the um, front edge of the, of the glenoid or the socket of the shoulder than it usually was. There are times when you have some bone loss in the back, we can also do something that's called a remplissage, which we tuck in a little bit of tissue in the back. Um, I tend to do that in about 40% of the cases because I think especially for our collision athletes, for football, basketball, soccer, high energy rock climbers, surfers, um, um, backcountry skiers and snowboarders, which honestly, that's most people by the end of the day. I think that helps decrease the risk if they have any bone loss or any bony injury in the back. Um, when that doesn't work, what when do you decide that it's probably the right time to do something bigger and do some sort of bone block procedure? And what is a bone block procedure? Yeah, no, I think, you know, in general, and that's part of the reason why we get MRIs or sometimes CT scans to look at things. I think the main thing we're looking at is the glenoid, which is basically the socket. If, for me, if it's more than 25%, 20 to 25% of that actual portion of that socket is actually damaged and the bone is kind of off or, or missing, then we know that sometimes just sewing the labrum back is not going to help because the structure in which the labrum is going to basically get repaired to just isn't there. So in those cases, and this typically is in individuals who have dislocated multiple times and are starting impacting the bone, you don't want to go in there arthroscopically and repair it because it's just going to be failing. So then what you have to do is figure out, okay, there, how is there some way where I can make that bone stronger in the front? One of the things that we can do is actually take some bone in the front of the shoulder, which is your coracoid, where some of your muscles actually attach, and actually move that over and actually make a bony bumper where you're basically getting bone in the front to prevent your shoulder from popping back out. Typically for most of us, that's um, done after someone has either failed an arthroscopic procedure, which can happen particularly in higher demand athletes, or actually when there's just such a severe dislocation where you've dislocated nine, 10, 11 times, you have to go down that route. It's a much larger procedure. It's done through an open incision. There are screws involved. Um, it's a much more difficult rehab, but with younger patients who may get that done, they can have a very high success rate, but it is definitely a much more complex procedure. Some people are trying to do that with a camera, but once again, that's very, very difficult. I think it's our it's another thing we have in our toolbox to help fix shoulder dislocations, but I think the vast majority of us will, will try arthroscopic first, particularly if patients can come to see us uh, relatively soon. I think the one thing that we're learning more and more about is that a lot of patients who have shoulder dislocations that come to the emergency room, if you have private insurance, you, have, you come from a great socioeconomic background, um, you basically can come right into the emergency room, you go to your primary care doctor, you get that MRI and you're being treated after your first dislocation. For a lot of communities that are disadvantaged, what ends up happening is that they never get in to see their primary care physician to get that MRI. They don't seek care in orthopedic specialists. There's a great delay in terms of getting an MRI. And then by the time you see us, it's dislocation eight, nine, or 10. So I think there's something that we can do at the beginning to help people potentially rehab, potentially get arthroscopic procedures and not get down to the time where they're getting this large open procedure because they've dislocated out multiple times. Yeah, I mean, you've just brought up a whole slew of injuries and you have a nice uh, research paper on that that shows that people from a disadvantaged background 
actually do have to wait for longer to get in, they do end up with more bone damage and more damage to the soft tissues of their shoulder, which is really disappointing because I really do think it changes, especially a talented young athlete or somebody who really enjoys playing sports. If they can't play sports for a couple of years just because they haven't been able to seek the appropriate care, it's really disappointing. Um, I'm going to ask you one last question um, about rehab and return to sport. After you, let's say you have a basketball player, so had a shoulder stabilization. I did it, so everything went well. Um, when do you tell them that they can go back and play sports in terms of timeline? Yeah, you know, that's a great question. I think, you know, with ACLs, with a lot of lower extremity surgeries, we have very kind of defined timelines. You know, ACL is nine to 12 months. I think with, with shoulder surgery, I think that there's a lot more literature uh, that needs to be done out there in terms of what are the criteria we use to get people back to play. In general, those same kind of criteria that you use for non-operative management, you try to use with, with after shoulder surgery as well too. You know, full motion, full strength, no apprehension, the ability to do activities. I find that most uh, of my individuals will typically somewhere between four and a half to six months is when they get back. I think for quote unquote non-contact athletes, maybe, you know, a, you kind of a lot of contact would be football, basketball being kind of like in the middle. I usually say right around four and a half, five months for your football players right around six months. I think in general, at three months, we know the soft tissues have healed, but you need that additional period of time to get your um, strength and, and functional mobility kind of back in that shoulder. So somewhere between four and a half to six months is where I tell most of my athletes that they can come back. Yeah, I would agree with that. I would say for things like baseball, I'll let them start trying at four if they've got good control. If they don't feel entirely comfortable, I'm happy waiting five or six months. For basketball, I usually say around five months. Soccer, um, four to five months. Football is a solid six months just because I think there's so much that goes into playing football and getting your arm in that extended position. And same for rock climbers and extreme sports people. Um, when other people are relying on you or people are going to have to rescue you. Um, for my adult population, there's a lot of people that are trying to get back out into surfing and you really have to be a hundred percent comfortable to be going out, especially in the winter. Awesome. Yep. Absolutely. Totally agree. I mean, we could talk about this for hours, uh, you know, with, with all the different uh, various techniques and not even talk about people who dislocate their shoulder out, not from trauma. Um, but uh, once again, thank you very much for listening to our podcast and uh, we look forward to uh, producing more episodes for you. Thank you.